as far as Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us truth that sets us free. Thank you for reminding us of every order of freedom that you've given us, even especially on this Memorial Day weekend for those who have died and in many ways purchased said freedom for we Americans so that we can do this thing we're about to do to break bread and to fellowship together without persecution, without the threat of injury, Father. We know this is not the case across the world. And so for this form of grace, we are very grateful. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this morning. And of course, we pray for those that are still lost. We're so grateful, Father, that you chose to send your son to die in our stead, to cancel out that debt, and to make a morning like this a reality. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, a friendly reminder that freedom isn't free. So just um, this weekend, instead of just tipping a few back or whatever you have planned, or I'm sorry if that's too presumptuous, but uh, you know what I mean. Instead of just uh, taking tomorrow off, if you've got it off, or um, sort of glazing over um, you know, Memorial Day, just remember that people have died uh, so that we can have a building like this, so that we can fellowship this way. People have chosen... Uh, to lay down their lives uh, so that we can do this thing. And, of course, God ordains everything, and so God had his hand in it, knowing that days like this would be celebrated by individuals like us. So uh, God works all things together for good, right, for those who uh, love him. So just keep that in prayer uh, as we trudge on in our series now. Um, on Tuesday and Thursday, we did note a pattern that exists <clears throat> throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We might summarize it up here on the board with Psalm 107, 6 and the Amplified. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he rescued them from their distresses. So we see this pattern, this crying out and then a rescue, uh, humble Beating of the chest, if you'd like to use uh, the example in Luke, um, is it 13, 18? Um, this humility up front followed by grace. Crying out, rescue. Let me give you the Amplified Classic as well. Yet he raises the poor and needy from affliction and makes their families like a flock. This is verse 41 of 107, the Amplified Classic. Yet he raises the poor and needy from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. Again, what we see is very simple, and this has been in my own personal studies as of late. Uh, the sovereignty of God has come up an awful lot from this pulpit over the last few years now. And I think one of the great errors in this world, especially in Christian churches, is that somehow the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God. God's right to choose even 
uh, has been dismissed, has been watered down, has been forgotten about because when there's a sovereign in the room, everyone else is subservient. And in America, we don't like that very much. We like to be in control. We don't like the idea of someone else being in complete control. And so I would argue that these things go hand in hand, especially in America, that God's sovereignty uh, is just not politically correct, is it? It's not. And so his sovereignty, whenever you bring it up uh, and use it as the linchpin of, say, a key doctrine like the gospel, people get offended, especially in America. And so we can't take that route. We have to understand this principle up here on the board. The God of all grace, <clears throat> there is, <clears throat> excuse me, allergies are killing me. There is 100% consistency with any, any and all Old Testament and New Testament scripture. Our God is a God of grace regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. We are able to read our Bibles without being confused about who God is and why He initiates and responds the way He does. That's a beautiful thing. I love the fact that I can go to any book right now, open it up, and see the same God of grace. And not be confused just because there was a different administration, or if you'd like to call it a dispensation, I don't care. That's actually not in the Bible, the word, so whatever. If you want to call it another time, I'm good with that as well. But what I want you to know is that it's the same God with the same grace who responds the same way to individuals who cry out. His full intention on the basis of His love is to rescue us, rescue those in need, those afflicted. And as I taught last week, the idea of need must be recognized. That's where our own free will comes in. So, again, there is 100% consistency with any and all Old Testament, New Testament scripture. Our God is a God of grace, regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. Therefore, we are able to read our Bibles without being confused about who God is and why He initiates and responds the way He does. This makes total sense based on Holy Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14.33. For our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Any questions? He's not out to confuse us. He doesn't say, well, I'm one God in the Old Testament and I'm another one in the New. And oh, by the way, for a little while I became man and then that's another so-called dispensation, just to completely complicate things. He doesn't do that. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in theology to understand the Holy Bible. That is the beauty of why we are allowed and encouraged to read our own Bibles. Again, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So you might even make this conversation that we're having very personal, in fact. I'd recommend it. Figuratively speaking, look at yourself in the mirror right now. Look at yourself, your life. Look at yourself and your life in the mirror right now. Think about the simple fact that God has chosen to save you. Presumably that's true. 
Think about the simple fact that God has chosen to save you. And since he has promised to sanctify his own, consider the fact that anything good staring back at you in the mirror is as Paul described it up here in the board in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By his grace alone. You were dead in your trespasses. Completely dead as a doornail. Incapable of even saying boo. Incapable, really, of even believing anything. You didn't really want to believe it because you were completely depraved destitute of any light even what shall you believe if you're destitute of light if light can't get in if all light is locked out so to speak in that moment the way you were born in despair are you grateful yet god chose to save you so the question when you look in the mirror is am i grateful we certainly should be. As we've learned, gratitude motivates us. Motivation energizes our sense of purpose. And when we have a sense of purpose, we have direction. And when all of this pulls together in such a way that we can clearly see it, our affections are also amplified. Our affections are affected, if you would. This is another primary theme we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those who understand God's grace are completely blown away by it. Just floored by it. If you're not floored by God's grace, then you have a lot to learn. You might be stuck religiously. You might be holding on to something, thinking that you have a part in it. And to whatever degree you do that, you diminish His grace in your life. And to whatever degree that grace is diminished in your life, to that, to that same degree you're not blown away by it. Because you're dependent, you're self-reliant on blowing yourself away. Which would be a pretty standard description of Americans. So those who understand God's grace are completely blown away by it. It becomes so large in the life of a believer, that God's desire for complete dependence on it becomes something pursued at all costs. Give me more grace and more grace. Melding wonderfully with every other aspect of his or her life in time. In fact, the whole idea is that a believer abandon any remnant of self-sufficiency in their soul for this incredible grace. That's the whole idea behind sanctification, that we leave it all behind. All the remnants, all the stickiness of the, the self-life, we know that that doesn't uh, happen immediately through conversion. We're still stuck in our old ways. There's still momentum in our lives from when we weren't saved. Um, there's still tendrils of lies in our lives that we all deal with. The vestiges of sin, we might call it. But the whole idea in sanctification is that we abandon any of that, any remnant like that, for this incredible grace. We noted a passage where this was surely evident. Go to Psalm 84, verse 1. Psalm 84, verse 1. 
certainly evident in Holy Scripture. This is just one example, by the way. I mean, we could, I could go for five years. I'd probably just end up reading the whole Bible, really, if I was to show you all the passages regarding grace. We would essentially read the Bible from cover to cover. Psalm 84, verse 1. Here's a good wisdom viewpoint of it. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house in the swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Salah. Go forward to verse 11. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Again, the familiar verse in the New Testament is James 4, 6. I'm opposed to the proud. I give grace to the humble. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Verse 12. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Again, to our previous point up here on the board. The God of all grace, there is 100% consistency with any and all Old Testament and New Testament scripture. Our God is a God of grace, regardless of dispensation, administration, or economy. We are able to read our Bibles without being confused about who God is and why he initiates and responds the way he does. Why? Once again, because Holy Scripture tells us our God is not a God of confusion. Just remember that. So if if any confusion is introduced into your soul about who and what God is, or maybe his character, or the things he does. It just means that you're confused and you need to read your Bible more. Now, interestingly enough, I was uh, tasked on Thursday evening with teaching a complicated lesson. There was really no other way to look at it. It was just complicated. Uh, And if you read the blog titled The Complexities of War, you know why I have to teach complicated lessons once in a while. My disclaimer out of the gate, of course, is don't blame me. If you were, you know, confused a little bit on Thursday, don't blame the messenger. I'm not the one who has perverted the gospel. I'm not the one who has messed with the doctrines of God. Because the doctrines of God are actually very easy to understand. But when you pervert them, they become convoluted and complicated. And for someone like myself who is charged with ironing out those things, it means I have to become a surgeon. And it's really hard to surgically remove things out of good flesh, what's there. And so that's the thing. So I've taught this concept many times in the past. Again, I just wrote a blog this week titled The Complexities of War. Since God is not a God of confusion, then we must conclude that any confusion with messages like these are the result of our own sinful natures having to cope with lies. There's some remnant. Something is upsetting the purity and devotion to Christ. Because the things that I'm trying to protect are actually very simple. So it's really the introduction of sin 
that makes things complicated. So that's how sin works. First, it takes the helm of the ship and attempts to set its course, which it cannot do because it is navigating in darkness. Then it attempts to navigate its way out of said darkness without any access to light. Jesus spoke of this dilemma. Go to Matthew 15, 13. Matthew 15, 13. So once you're riddled with sin, once you're into the control of sin, so to speak, you're in the dark. And navigating in any good way is impossible. Matthew 15, 13. Jesus spoke of this issue, this dilemma. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father, 1513, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Yeah. If a blind man, if someone's in the dark, they are essentially blind. If a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Do you see the distinction between that scenario and the one Jesus describes in the following? Go to John 10, verse 2. John 10, verse 2. Keep that blind leading the blind passage in view. And let's read John 10, 2. Think of all the complexities that are introduced in the pitch black when you're trying to find your way out of it. Think of the complexities, the unknowns, the anxiety, the worry, the fear of being in a pitch black situation. John versus this. John 10.2 But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Wouldn't that just be wonderful if you're in the pitch black? 360 degrees, no light whatsoever. You are uh, afraid, let's say. And then you hear the voice of your Lord. Hey, insert your own name. I'm over here. And there's a light over there. Come over here with me towards the light. And you follow his voice. Think of the comfort of that. Again, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. What a wonderful depiction of what it's like to be guided by the light. The only way out of darkness is via the light, the true light of life, that is the very fullness of grace and truth. John 1.14, that is, of course, Jesus Christ. Up here on the board. So to add to this idea of the God of all grace, we are saved by grace in every sense of the phrase. Beginning with salvation proper, there is no movement away from sin that isn't empowered by God personally. The only part man plays is a crying out, for his mercy. And we saw that in Luke 18, 13, the beating of the breast. Again, now, just as a side note, to be totally accurate, to be totally accurate, even this crying out can never be done alone. 
for a dead person can't do this either. You have to say, wait a minute, I can't even cry. No, you cannot. A dead person is dead. They can't even cry out. So when we're talking about salvation proper, you have no hope. None. I think many Christian churches have been misled on this simple topic. And the results have been disastrous because it is the gospel of grace that is being marred in the process. So let me set the record straight using Holy Scripture up here on the board. It's not the first time I've taught you this. This is absolutely true. God saves. We don't save ourselves. We can't even say if we were able, which we're not, if we were able to cry out on our own, save me. We still can't save. We cannot demand that he save us. You gotta, people, I think, in, in Christian circles need to get this through their head. But you see, as soon as you start watering down the sovereignty of God, that proposition rises up. Well, if God's not sovereign in everything that he does, including choosing me for salvation, then I rise up as a sort of a partaker in this whole salvation scheme. All I have to do is make a demand by saying, I believe, or I'm crying out, save me. No. God saves. God saves. It is entirely up to God to save a person. If you don't understand that, keep reading your Bible. It is entirely up to God. That's not politically correct, is it? Because that takes... That takes that shared sovereignty. That takes that sense of power and entitlement away from the human flesh. And people don't like that. It is entirely up to God to save a person. John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So salvation is entirely up to the sovereign God of the universe. And if you have a problem with that, then you literally have a problem with God. You don't like the fact that he has 100% control. Not 99.9 to 0.1, because you're, you know, you're the humble sort. I'll give most of it to, to God, but I've got to have at least one little thing. That's intolerable to God. God says, I found you dead. It's entirely up to me to pick you up, to turn you around, to give you saving faith, and then bring glory to, my, to myself by watching the evidence of my doing so. This is my salvation plan, not yours. And in America, we don't like to hear that, do we? we don't like, that's, a, that's untenable for the average American mind. Because we're, we're brainwashed into thinking that you know, we're in control, that, that it's, we're our own sovereign. And that such speaking is, is um, it's not palpable. It's offensive. Oh, offensive. Imagine that. Imagine Jesus Christ being offensive. Doesn't it, does it say that somewhere? Imagine his words right here being offensive. I, Pastor Ed didn't say that. That's literally Holy Scripture, is it not? Any questions? You don't, go to, you don't go to him unless the Father draws you to him. End of story. That is it. 
You can say anything you want with your lips. But if he doesn't draw you, you're not, you're not coming. <laughs> we know that a dead person can't move himself towards God. Therefore, up here on the board, the only way a person is able to move towards God is if God enables said movement by grace. By grace. The only way a person is able to move towards God is if God enables said movement by grace. And as we know from Holy Scripture, God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, we conclude that the only person that will ever be drawn to God is the humble one. As I stated on Thursday, even a person who says in unrepentant arrogance, so they're postured here, and they say in unrepentant arrogance, I believe, therefore I'm saved, is, if wholly dependent on this posture alone, unsaved. It does not matter what you suppose to be true. <laughs> does not matter what you propose to put God to, up to. Up here on the board, we'll call that assuming God's power to save. The subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant professor of faith is that the power to save has been shifted to the individual away from our merciful Creator. In other words, they are the ones calling all the shots, holding the cards. Contrary to what we just saw in John 6.44. I'm talking about an attitude here. I'm talking about a person who puts God on his heels, that has little or no respect for the sovereignty of God, which includes his 100% choice to choose you for salvation. I'm talking about that person. It's very subtle, though. The subtlety of the unrepentant, arrogant professor of faith is that the power to save has been shifted to the individual away from our merciful Creator. In other words, they are the ones calling all the shots, holding the cards. Ask yourselves one basic question, just to help cement the angle the Spirit's taking here, in defense of God's grace, by the way. Is it merciful? First of all, is it merciful to save you? That's... Almost a stupid question, right? Of course it is. Is mercy a gift or a payment? Of course it's a gift. But the arrogant person tries to make it a payment, you see. Well, I did this and this and this, and I said I believe you owe me salvation. But the Bible says mercy is a grace gift. Go to Romans 4.4. 4. <clears throat> Romans 4, verse 4. This is very subtle, but I think a lot of people, probably, probably a good portion of you is probably still confused in your soul somewhere about this because you've been taught some kind of a cheapened, watered-down gospel and clung to it possibly for years. I don't know. But that's my job, to teach you the truth, to show you the truth. I'm just a bus driver. I'm not trying to... Uh, supplant holy doctrine with my own. 
Is mercy, first of all, a, a gift or a, pay, uh, or a payment? That's the question on the table. Romans 4.4, 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor. In other words, it's not grace, right? But as what is due. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's what Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You see the distinction. One is grace, the latter, and one is a payment, the former. Okay? And that's what Paul is putting on the table. So is mercy a grace gift or a payment? Of course, it's the latter. Oh, excuse me, it's the former, but the latter in our passage here. It's a grace gift up here on the board. So we can put this, we can conclude this without any shadow of doubt up here on the board. Mercy is a grace gift. Amen? All right. So again, I ask you, is mercy a gift or a payment? The answer is obviously a grace gift. So then, you ready? Since it's a grace gift, based on the sovereign will of the one giving it, we don't get to demand mercy from anyone, especially not from God. Does that make sense? You can't come on the scene and say, I demand you give me mercy. That um, blows up the idea that it's a grace gift. Because we just read Romans 4, that's how grace is administered. It's free. It's not something you earned. Which means that you can't demand mercy from God. Technically, if you understand the doctrine of mercy, you know that you can't demand mercy from anyone. If I want to show you mercy, that's my prerogative, right? I don't have to. You can't come up to me like some idiots do Hey, you're a Christian. You, you, you have to do this. No, I don't. I thought you were a Christian. I actually am. Then you have to do this. Says who? You? You're not even saved. You're just some jackass trying to enslave me. The way jackasses try to enslave God. Do you see the arrogance? You see the subtleties going on behind the scenes? This is how slick Satan is. We don't get to demand mercy from anyone, especially not from God. What a lot of, quote, Christian churches are doing nowadays is watering down God's sovereign right to do exactly as He pleases. They're watering down God's sovereign right to do exactly as He pleases. And when the tables turn like this, demands are made. If God, if God doesn't have every right to demand or to do whatever He wants, then that, some of the power shifts, doesn't it? It shifts towards the creature. It takes away from the Creator and shifts toward the creature. Oh, you mean we got a skin in this game, says the flesh? Yeah, that's the whole idea with perverting God's grace and His sovereignty. So demands are made at that point. You see, it's offensive to human sensibilities to present a God who just might say, you ready? No! <laughs> Was that too loud? Hey, Pat's like, whoa! <laughs> it's like, <gasps> Sorry, I shouldn't make fun of that, huh? She's laughing. <laughs> God forbid... God says no. 
It's like the spoiled little child, right? God forbid the parent nowadays can actually say no to a child. It's untenable, right? It's not PC. It's bad. It's, you know, you're a bad parent now. Because children have rights. So it's offensive to human sensibilities to present a God who just might say no to a person who has been, let's say, you know, super religious their whole life. Maybe they go to church, maybe, they, you know. It's offensive to human sensibilities that God has every right to choose for himself which man or woman he will save. That's an offensive proposition nowadays. It's offensive to human sensibilities that man is relegated to pleading for his mercy in saving them. That's an offensive proposition. That we're in a complete defenseless, helpless situation. And we have to look to God to save us. Imagine that. That's offensive. And they may not ever come out and say that. That's the point. But what they teach and the doctrines that they teach imply all of it. The average Christian church seems to count prostrating ourselves before a holy God as demeaning or degrading. And so these churches suppose or propose that a person can stand up eye to eye with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and say, hmm, let me hear what you're selling and maybe I'll let you know if I'm buying. That is the way that the gospel is presented now. That God's some weak, pathetic, not sovereign God who's out there pleading with people. I mean, forget the whole discussion about wrath or actual righteous judgment. I mean, that's, un that's unbelievably uh, offensive nowadays. The arrogance is stupendous. If a person maintains this arrogant attitude or posture even while being presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, what the Bible tells us is as Jesus said. Go to Matthew 7, verse 20. Matthew 7, verse 20. So you mean to tell me someone can get the gospel, say they believe it, and God can still say no? Yep. Yep, don't ask, me what his, don't ask me to sit in the chair of, of God in the throne of grace. I'm not the dispenser of grace. By the way, there's a whole church in our area, the biggest one, who says they're the dispenser of grace. And more uniquely, it's actually Mary, you know, the mother of God. She's the dispenser of grace. Are you kidding me, people? Yeah, that's what, we're, that's what we live in. That's, the, that's our neighborhood. Matthew 7, 20. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So just a little perspective. Jesus didn't have a problem with the works these folks claimed to accomplish, strictly speaking. 
He didn't say any of the works necessarily he had a problem with. He had a problem with the hearts of those doing them. So they did things, they said things, but their heart wasn't with them. And so he said, I never knew you. I say no. My father says no. My father never drew you. You drew yourself upon high. Because you're so stinking, ridiculously arrogant that you think you have that ability. So concentrate. The subtle error here means that man presumes to be in control of his own destiny. There are poems. All I can think is, uh, oh, Captain, my Captain. Remember that from, uh, was it Young Dead Poet Society, that whole thing? Garbage. Garbage. You're not the captain of your own ship. <laughs> You're dead. You ain't sailing anything there, sailor. You got nothing going on. No rudder, no wind in your sails, nothing. You are dead. So there's an error here that man presumes to be in control of his own destiny. Nowhere in the Bible is this ever stated. In fact, just the opposite is stated up here on the board. You know who's in control? God is in control. God is in control. Man does not control his destiny. God does. Man may suppose that he is saved, but unless God saves him, he is never saved. We just read that in Matthew 7, 20-23. Man cannot control God with his own will or whimsical suppositions about God's desire to save. God has a definite wrath reserved for those who suppose such things. You know how unpopular that is right there? Nowadays, in today's so-called Christian churches, man does not control his destiny, God does. Man may suppose that he is saved, but unless God saves him, he's never saved. Man cannot control God with his own will or whimsical suppositions about God's desire to save. In other words, I demand mercy, that whole angle. God has a definite wrath reserved for those who suppose such things, who remain in that kind of arrogance towards the sovereign God. Go to Romans 9.10 if you don't believe me. Go to Romans 9.10. If, if, just in case you think I'm on crack, that Jim whipped up a crack-flavored tea over here. If it is, man, it's pretty good, Jim. I wouldn't know, though. I've never taken crack. <laughs> Romans 9.10. Don't believe me. Like, for real. Don't believe me, then. Read your Bible. What's the Bible say on this subject? Does God have a sovereign right to choose or not? You don't have to believe me. Is God in control or is man in control? You can read the Bible just like I can, so let's, let's read it. Romans 9.10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice, do you see it? Not your choice, not Rebekah's, not the twins. God's choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? 
may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills. You get it? It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on who? God, who has mercy. You do not get to demand his mercy. Tell that to the average Christian church nowadays. They don't get it. They don't teach it. They don't get it. I'm not, I'm not trying to pit us against other churches. I'm just saying it's dangerous out there. That's why I'm doing this. I don't have anybody in view either. Okay? Just so you know. I'm just saying it's dangerous out there. There's a lot of bad doctrine out there. Even with crosses on the front of the building. Okay? So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Any questions? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Loaded question, isn't it? On the contrary, who are you? Do, you? do you understand? That very question supposes you have one iota of a right to, to, to proposition God that way. Who the hell are we? That's exactly what the Spirit's been getting at this morning. We bring God down, we elevate ourselves like a seesaw almost. We elevate ourselves up. You know what I mean? We try to get eye to eye with the sovereign God of the universe. It's the same way that an arrogant teenager, you know, once they grow up to be eye-to-eye with pops, they think they have something to say. No, they don't. In my case, both of my boys are taller than me. And I'm like 6'2", so it's weird. Because <laughs> I'm wrong. We try to get eye-to-eye with the holy God of the universe. Just put that into perspective. What does it say in Scripture? Who are you, old man? Who are you? That, that should be tattooed on most people's foreheads when they look in the mirror. Who are you? Maybe on their thumbs when they pray, if they even pray. Who are you? Let's get our perspective right about who God is. God is sovereign. <laughs> on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, you understand? You don't come unless you're called, whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Again, as an extension of Thursday's so-called difficult lesson, what's the Spirit trying to teach us? It's up here on the board, that God is in control. He just said it in Holy Scripture. 
I show mercy who I show mercy. I show compassion who I show compassion to. And who are you to question me? Man does not control his destiny. God does. Man may suppose that he is saved, but unless God saves him, he is never saved. Man cannot control God with his own will or whimsical suppositions about God's desire to save. God has a definite wrath reserved for those who suppose such things. We just read Romans 9, 10 to 24. As soon as a man assumes control, he ejects himself from God's gracious plan for him. Even as believers, we can relate to this. As soon as we think we have control, we move away from His grace. As soon as we think we have control, there's a certain personal exertion involved, isn't there? And all of a sudden, we're dependent on our power to deliver us, to steer the ship, not God. As soon as we do that, we move away from God's grace. That's the sin in us, still struggling with us, trying to take control. DJ, what's it all about? There you go. All about control. It's all about control. Watch two idiots fight. No, I'm serious. Verbally, physically, what is it about? Control. I need to dominate. That's Tashuka, right? I'm an idiot. I'm a sinner. Tashuka, I need to dominate. I don't care if I win. I, I just need to win. It's all about control. Amen, DJ? As soon as a man assumes control, he ejects himself from God's gracious plan for him. This is the basis of yet another saying from Jesus. Go to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. All about control, people. Mark 8.34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Because Jesus' words are so offensive to contemporary, quote, Christian theology, I've been calling it, excuse me, anti-grace, grace teaching. You know what? Those words we just read, they're no longer stomached. Because Jesus' words apparently are offensive. And since they're so utterly offensive, how could they possibly be true? Isn't that what we teach? Isn't that what most people teach their children now? It's all like existentialism. If you feel it's right, then it must be right. If you feel it's wrong, then it must be wrong. If it's that offensive, it's got to be wrong. Because Jesus' words are so offensive to contemporary Christian theology, his words are no longer stomached. Now, here's where it gets very interesting. I ask you to hold on tight here for a moment because it's reminiscent of Thursday. I'll say it again. Because Jesus' words are so offensive to contemporary Christian theology, I'll call it anti-grace, quote, grace teaching, his words are no longer stomached. Satan has devised an alternative to adhering to Jesus' words in the Holy Bible. Simply remove them from your consideration. One way of doing it, right? Just 
It wasn't for you. Jesus wasn't talking to you. Satan has devised an alternative to adhering to Jesus' words in the Holy Bible. We'll just say it this way. Simply remove them from consideration. Insisting that Jesus' divine wisdom on the subject of his own gospel isn't for us. That the gospel he brought, taught, and defended with his life was distinctly different than the one, say, Paul wrote about. I have my notes here, yowza. Literally, yowza. And all the while, Satan proposes that since there's fewer stumbling blocks, you ready? This is where it gets tricky. Since there are fewer stumbling blocks, the pathway to salvation is made easier. Does that make sense? In other words, well, (laughs) since these hard topics make people stumble on their way to, you know, heaven, we're going to move them out of the way. Jesus' words obviously are offensive to the average Christian nowadays, it seems, or at least some. So we'll move them out of the way. We'll take them right out of the equation. Now there's nothing to stumble over. You don't have to stumble over the the man that's actually called the stumbling block, the rock of offense. We'll, We'll just remove his words from consideration to make it, you know, easier for man. So Satan proposes that since there's fewer stumbling blocks, the pathway to salvation is, quote, made easier based on a perverted, non-biblical theory. You ready? That grace is whatever makes salvation easy for man. That's the perversion. That by definition, grace is whatever makes salvation easy for man. All the while, the proponents of Satan's gospel will call it grace, even though they had to throw out Jesus' own words in the process. And just as a side note, I'm not casting aspersions at well-intentioned pastors. Remember, even Jesus called Peter Satan. This isn't a personal attack on any one or any group of pastors. This is about holy doctrine. This is about what's actually in the Bible. This is about protecting what is right, what Jesus came to spread, what he asked us to spread. That is the gospel. Nonetheless, I ask, could there be a bigger mistake anyone could ever make that is to cast off Jesus' own words about the gospel? Could there be a bigger mistake? Think about it. If you remove the pristine object, capital O, If you remove the pristine object of the gospel from the gospel, what are you left with? Let me tell you. I'll give you a hint. Jesus is called the stumbling block and the rock of offense. So, you take Jesus out of the gospel, what do you have? You have a gospel that doesn't make anyone stumble. Ta-da! Isn't that just so nice? Isn't that, like, isn't that prettier on a Sunday morning? I mean, I mean, who goes to church nowadays to stumble? Certainly not you guys. <laughs> you guys are used to it. You guys come with your like, helmets on, your jofas, some of you. It's a hockey helmet. It looks funny. 
If you take Jesus out of the gospel, you have a gospel that doesn't make anyone stumble. He literally is called the stumbling block and the rock of offense. He had no problem telling people. Didn't we just read that? Get away from me. I never knew you. But, 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 but. I don't know you. But look at this. Look at my resume. I, I see it. I don't know you. My father didn't draw you through me. You see, you take Jesus out of the gospel, you have a gospel that doesn't make anyone stumble. It's not the gospel that Jesus brought, taught, and defended, but at least it's not offensive, right? Up here on the board. God's grace. God's grace is not man's. This is something I think we have to iron out in our souls. I think this is one of the great perversions of all, because people like to use the word grace in their vernacular, and it's always on and by the definition of man, do you see? That grace means somehow accommodating. Do you understand? That, 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 grace, that grace is somehow a shoehorn that widens the justice of God. Does that make sense? That, that God will allow us somehow to compromise His own integrity. In the name of grace, we get to shoehorn our way into heaven. And I'm cutting a lot of things out there, but I hope you know what I'm saying. I'm focusing on the shoehorn effect. That by man's definition, that's exactly what grace is. Grace widens. But yet Jesus is the one who said the way is narrow that leads to life. He didn't say it was wide. He said it's narrow. He said strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive. That's a wrestling term. So something's got to be wrong with our definition of grace if we suppose and we use it as like a, 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 a splinter or a lever or the jaws of life so that our uncle and our aunt and the people who are arrogant can sneak in God's grace is not man's. Man defines, quote, graciousness along the same vein as tolerance and political correctness. For example, it's wrong to be offensive or to make someone stumble, even if it's over the truth. God defines grace as providing a way to salvation regardless if it is disagreeable to human sensibilities. Isn't that what we just saw in Romans 9? But I don't like your way to grace. Who are you? No, for real. Can we just step back for a moment? Who are you? I gave you, yeah, it's narrow. Yeah, you got to go this way. Nobody gets in unless I call them through, but it's narrow. You don't get to use your definition of grace, some perverted version of it, to shoehorn that gate to a wider degree and in the process compromise my integrity. I am sovereign. I am holy. I've never messed up. I'm immutable. I've never changed. I'm not about to change because Uncle Jimmy's a jackass or your beloved kid is an arrogant you-know-what. I'm not about to let you shoehorn him in or her in on the side 
because you love them so much. That's not how it works here. My grace is not by definition yours. Isaiah 55, 8, right? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not my, your thoughts. We don't get to do that thing. It's in the same line as we don't get to demand mercy from God. We don't get to demand that people, you know, I suppose we love get jammed in through the narrow gate. That's offensive, isn't it? I can tell by your body language some of you are offended with me right now, which is a mistake. Which is a huge mistake because you're making it about a man instead of what you're actually reading in your own Bible. You don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God, if that's you. God's grace is not man's. Man defines graciousness along the same vein as tolerance and political correctness. It's wrong to be offensive and to make someone stumble, even if it's over the truth. The microcosm is in the family nowadays. That's why you have so many little greedy little monsters out there called kids. God defines grace as providing a way to salvation regardless if it is disagreeable to human sensibilities. Who are you, old man? I made a way. I became a man. You have no idea what that even means to me. You have no idea the, the, the chasm between me and me becoming one of you and then dying for your you can't even You can't even draw that. You could run from here. You could pick a marker that never runs out of ink, put it on the floor, and run for the day till the day you die. That line is not long enough to represent how far I came down to do this work. You're going to tell me that's not grace? I don't like it because Uncle Jimmy can't get in. Who are you? You see what we've done? The average Christian church has put God on his heels. He thinks he can, but he can't. But in his theology, he has put God on his heels. And has watered down the gospel, even taken the stumbling block out of the way to accommodate something a little easier to swallow. <laughs> so awful it is because you just lied to Uncle Jimmy and said that he's secure when he's not. I wonder how God thinks about that. I wonder what God thinks about lying to people about the gospel out of some so-called love. What I know from Holy Scripture is God's grace is not man's. But I know He's gracious beyond measure until you can put... All right, let, me, let me say this one last way and then I'll move on. Until you think you can put your arms around, you can bound God's grace, what He has done in grace. Until you're able to do that, you have no right to step outside and beyond it and say it's not enough. Does that make sense? Here's the, here's the key to that whole thing. You'll never put your arms around that grace. You'll never bound His grace because it's boundless. So that's the challenge. Until someone is able to put their arms around that grace completely, until then, they don't have anything else to say about how it's not enough. Is that fair? If this is infinite... Uncontainable, un, uncontainable, then how do you ever say it's not enough? It's infinite. It's big enough. Conclusion, proponents of this anti-grace, quote, grace teaching actually miss the mark on the very word they hold up as a billy club. Grace. They use man-made definitions like billy clubs. 
They take ownership of it. They claim it as their own. Satan's brilliant, isn't he? Up here on the board, anti-grace, quote, grace teaching. Little children, make sure no one deceives you, 1 John 3, 7. Do not be afraid to stand up for Jesus. Never allow someone to remove his words from your lips, just so a lesser grace may be supposed. Fight for Jesus. Fight to keep him as the object of the gospel he brought, taught, defended with his own life. Where's the fight in you? Do not be afraid to stand up for Jesus. Never allow someone to remove his words from your lips, just so a lesser grace may be supposed. Fight for Jesus. Fight to keep him as the object of the gospel he brought, taught, and defended with his own life. If you are confused by any of this, then pray to God for clarity. Take the time to meditate on these subtleties because they are insidious and require your attention. And do not do as some do and brush off these differences as, you know, oh, well, I'm just going to suppose we're all saved, so what does it matter? My question is, are you sure? If someone is clinging to a false gospel... Are you sure? Do you realize that the root of this error is the cause for a multitude of complexities with respect to other doctrines in the Bible also? You know, the gospel is so unbelievably simple. I'm born depraved by grace. You ready? By grace, from that position. Dead as a doornail. By his choice, he picks me up, turns me around, saves me. I produce fruit. I bring glory to him. He takes me home. Ta-da! I pretty much gave you the gospel. He rescues you from that and brings you to this. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message. You don't need to tell anybody, you don't need to do a dissertation, a 52-hour dissertation on the book of Romans to give somebody the gospel. It's that simple. Do you realize the root of this error is the cause for a multitude of complexities with respect to doctrines, other doctrines in the Bible? How about this one up here on the board? James 2, 17 to 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But some, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's not politically correct anymore to say that God is going to complete a good thing he started in you. It's not politically correct to say that when he saves you, he changes you in such a way that you will bear good fruit. Amplified classic up here on the board. Same passage. So also faith, if it does not have works, deeds and actions of obedience to back it up, by itself is destitute of power, inoperative, dead. But someone will say to you then, you say you have faith and I have good works. Now you show me your alleged faith apart from any good works, if you can, 
and I, by good works of obedience, will show you my faith. Many of the same anti-grace, quote, grace teachers teach against what James clearly wrote in James 2. It seems like a strange thing to do, but in order to remain, you know, unoffensive, God forbid we offend people. God forbid. I actually had a pastor tell me he didn't want to teach this stuff because he was afraid of making his congregation stumble. He was afraid that he was going to be offensive. And how dare he offend the congregation? Maybe Paul didn't get that memo. Maybe Jesus didn't get that memo. Maybe Timothy, when he was told to teach in season and out of season, you know, out of season when it's not popular, maybe he didn't get that memo. Maybe we're supposed to be a bunch of accommodating... Maybe we're supposed to be a bunch of... I can't take it. I feel like rip, like throwing my pulpit around. Because the, it's so offensive to me. All I'm trying to do is defend the one thing that matters to me. And there are people out there, Satan's such a jerk. He's trying to... He's trying to rob all of you of the blessing of truth being taught. He's trying to intimidate guys like me into getting us to stop teaching the truth, to get with the times, to be more politically correct, less offensive, to stop talking about the justice or the judgment or the sovereignty of God because that's offensive, especially in America. He's trying to intimidate guys like me, but he's not going to. You see, I get frustrated, but then the Holy Spirit says, what are you doing? This is not my power. It's not even my place. This is his battle. My job is to deliver the truth. That's all I do, and that's all you're supposed to do outside of these four walls. You're being trained up to deliver the truth, to stand up for the truth. And the truth is always offensive. Jesus Christ is literally called the fullness of grace and truth. He's also called the rock of offense. So if he's truth and he's offensive, what can you say about truth? It's offensive. So it seems like a strange thing to do, but in order to remain unoffensive to their congregants, these people must explain away whole passages of Holy Scripture like this one. You have to. Eventually you run upon it, right, in the Bible? I mean, if you're teaching a congregation, eventually you run up upon the Scripture, correct? Or your congregation say, hey, hey, what do you think about this Scripture? Oh, we don't, we don't talk about that one. Or, you know what? That's, that's only for the Jews. Oh, that's, that wasn't, that's not for us. We, we're just going to, like, carve that right out. I pray for these people. So people have to explain away whole passages of Holy Scripture like, like the one we just saw. The Bible calls these kinds of unholy exercises disobedient. On the flip side, the Bible encourages we believers to be obedient 
In fact, on the premise of James 2, you know what? We will be obedient from the heart if we're saved. Why? Because it's God's work. To say that we won't ever be obedient in any way, shape, or form is to call the holy, sovereign God, the omnipotent God, uh, impotent. Say he's incapable. That he's, that he's a liar, too. The good news is that we are blessed by being sanctified this way. And I'm going to close here in a moment. Up here on the board, obedience. God desires us to obey him for our sakes so that we might enjoy his peace, joy, and life eternal in time. Therefore, humble submission to the will of God, a.k.a. obedience, results in godly fruit, starting with life eternal, peace, joy, and love experientially. Hence, Jesus' own words in John 15, 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And then we're going to end here the same way we ended on Thursday. There's no better day to obey God than today. So I say, keep it simple. Just keep it simple. Keep reading your Bibles and remain humble and all will be well with you. If you have to fight these battles, then keep it that way. Keep it over here. Do not let it upset the purity and devotion of Christ that is yours by privilege. Because that's what happens. This gets upset and then you lose your joy, you lose your peace, you lose your sense of even love in a sense, you follow? It's disruptive. We can have these, you have to learn to have these kinds of experiences. You have to learn what it means. What, what does the shield of faith look like? What does the helmet of salvation look like? What does the breastplate of righteousness look like? What do these things look like when they clash and sparks fly? What does it look like to hold that thing up? Well, if you don't understand your enemy, you're going to hold it up this way and he's going to come from behind. So there's a certain complexity in defending the gospel truth. Just differentiate between the two. Keep reading your Bibles, remain humble, and all will be well with you. If your life seems to become more complicated, hit the Bible and your knees even harder. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for always loving us. Thank you for letting us know that it's by grace that we are what we are. Thank you for your patience, your mercy, things we cannot demand from you, but we are ever grateful that you choose to give them to us in time. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and to a world that's just destitute, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.